All right. Hello and welcome to Morning Energy Live. I'm your host, Andrew Gillick, and today I have the pleasure of hosting Tim Latimer, CEO of Fervo. For those of you that don't know Fervo, it's one of the more exciting startups, if you can call it a startup since he's been around since 2017, um, in the energy transition space, looking to lead the charge in providing up to 20% of electricity in, uh, in the U.S. in the form of geothermal. Uh, for those of you who don't know what geothermal is, uh, maybe you dialed into the wrong webinar. Uh, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, okay, so before we jump in to hearing about how you've leveraged your traditional energy background to be a leader in the geothermal field, I'd like to ask you a few questions so our listeners can get to know you a little better. Ready? I'm ready. Okay. First, what is your favorite color of hydrogen? Oh man, can I say I I hate the colors? I think that uh, what matters I mean, you is can, but that wouldn't really be the answer to the question. Yeah, no, no, no color. <laughs> I think what what matters is is not a color but a standard. It's it's uh, uh, if hydrogen is going to be a clean energy resource, it needs to be uh, created with um, clean power. So I don't actually think it matters. Uh, uh, yeah, I think the color discussion is sometimes a distract, distract, distraction. I think anyway is fine as long as it achieves the goal of uh, creating hydrogen with low low emissions. And there's a lot of ways to do that. So All that's right. what I think. I will, I will accept that answer. Thank you. All right. Next question. Beach or mountains? Uh, mountains. Mm. It's, uh, it's lovely in the summer. It's lovely in the winter. I mean, kind of get it all right. the time there. All also, right. more exciting uh, geology in the mountains, which of probably course. a lot of your listeners can appreciate. <laughs> um, that's funny. Okay. Uh, have you been to more countries or states? States, but just barely. I've got uh, four states left to go that I haven't visited, so I'm trying to, trying to knock them all out. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's, that's exciting. Uh, like RV trip maybe this summer? Could be. Could be. Yeah. Could be fun. Uh, what was the first concert you ever went to? So I grew up near Waco and actually went to the same high school as Pat Green. And so the very first, uh, uh, I was several years younger than him. He was already a little bit famous by the time I made it to junior high. But he did a, a private concert right after he had one of his first big radio hits uh, at our school as kind of a give back. So Pat Green. Ah, that's kind of fun. Good. All right. Good Texas country. Good. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Final question. What is the best sandwich? The best sandwich. Um, I think my best sandwich is I'm in Houston. I think my best sandwich place is local foods and they've got all the great sandwiches. I think their crunchy chicken sandwich on a pretzel bun is probably my favorite. Ooh, the, the, the the advent of the pretzel bun in uh, sandwich culinary building has been a tremendous addition, I think, to uh, that's a game changer to our palates. Yeah, for sure. All right, thank you very much for that, Tim. Great. All right, so so for listeners turning in to learn a little bit more about geothermal, tell us how you got here, about your activist background, how many times you've been arrested, if you prefer chains or super glue to make your point. Oh. Sorry, that was for a different guest. Uh, it looks here like you're a petroleum engineer and worked in the oil patch. All right, tell us the Tim origin story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, many, many different opinions on how you tackle this problem of providing energy at, uh, for the world at lower emissions. And I think uh, I'm a little more solutions oriented than, <laughs> than maybe some of the uh, maybe some of the characteristics you mentioned there. But yeah, it is it is true. I started my career in in oil and gas. I worked as a drilling engineer for. Uh, BHP 
and uh, um, started in South Texas at their Eagleford assets. And um, it's actually kind of how I serendipitously stumbled into geothermal was that uh, Eagleford is a little bit higher from a from a temperature standpoint than some of the other shale assets. You know, not as hot as the Haynesville, but hotter than a lot of the other stuff that's onshore. And so we were looking at uh, temperature challenges in our drilling operations, and all of the um, a lot of the research on high temperature drilling. You know, the literature came from geothermal. So, like the more I was trying to research how to tackle high temperature drilling challenges, the more I learned about geothermal, and and uh, had never heard of it before. Um, you know, kind of being tasked with dealing with high temperatures uh, drilling in South Texas. And so then you're like, okay, let me go start a geothermal company. Like, Yeah, so part of that literature review, there was this really important MIT report that came out in, uh, in 2006 uh, that kind of outlined the future potential for geothermal. And it was mostly about uh, this category of geothermal called enhanced geothermal systems. And so to like kind of define enhanced geothermal systems, I know you got a lot of oil and gas listeners. It's a lot like the breakdown between conventional and unconventional. You know, traditional geothermal is called hydrothermal, and that's stuff where it's like shallow, high temperature, plenty of natural permeability to drive high fluid flow. And that stuff's been around for forever, but it's incredibly limited. Um, whenever you start talking about enhanced geothermal systems, you're talking about, you know, the unconventional world of geothermal. It's stuff that may be deeper, maybe less hot, maybe less naturally permeable and are there advanced methods, whether it's uh, new drilling techniques or application of hydraulic fracturing um, or other sort of well stimulation techniques that can get um, high flow rates out. And so this is all a big report from MIT about, um, about this. And the crux of the report was that uh, geothermal could be a massive pillar of the global energy mix, um, but technological challenges had to be tackled in order for that to, to become true. And by far the number one technology challenge of making geothermal work was, could you get high flow rates out of low permeability formations? And I'm like, you know, sitting on a drilling rig in South Texas, drilling the, the Eagleford in one of the biggest boom times uh, that, that the oil and gas industry has experienced, all because we developed the right technology uh, toolkit to get high flow rates out of low permeability formations. And I just thought this has to be the most obvious idea ever. If this is truly the grand technical challenge of geothermal, like it's been solved uh, and with the technology we have in oil and gas and we've got to do something about um, bringing that technology to geothermal. So this was not like last year, but years ago and that, you know, the unconventional uh, sort of revolution took off. Why, why is it taking so long for the world to realize that this works? Yeah, you know, there's been a lot of myths that we've had to bust along the way um, about geothermal. And geothermal is also a very undercapitalized industry relative to oil and gas and, and sort of very set in its ways um, and hasn't had the right amount of you know capital uh, in order to do tests and experiments over time. So like, I didn't start out to start a company. I had originally called all the geothermal incumbents that I could and I said, things like, hey, I'm a drilling engineer. I want to come work for your company. Like, I'd love to join the team that's working on, you know, horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing and unconventional development. And, and I got crickets. Uh, and all I heard from the geothermal community was, you can't do that. You can't drill horizontal wells in geothermal. You can't case the wells. You know, you can't create fractures in geothermal rock. It was just a lot of sort of naysaying. And so what like, I found is- Had they not was, seen what was going on in like- 
tens of thousands of wells being drilled in yeah, the Eagle Fruit in the Permian. No, it, yeah. it, it, was, it's, it was crazy, though, because, you know, we're in Houston. We've intentionally headquartered yeah. our, our company in Houston. We hired a lot from the oil and gas industry. But traditionally, even though both industries drill wells, there just wasn't a lot of communication. Uh, between these these industries, so you know, I went to the first my first geothermal conference in in Reno, which is kind of a big hub for geothermal, and no one there, you know, had been on a rig and doing unconventionals in the last few years, and so I kept being told like, you can't do this, you can't do that, and and I was flabbergasted because I'd just come off of rigs doing that in in the oil and gas world, and and I think that there was a lot of legitimate questions. Um, at the time about, you know, geothermal is not quite the same as oil and gas. The rocks are harder, they're hotter. Uh, we have to drill larger diameter wells. So there are actual fundamental differences between oil and gas drilling and geothermal drilling. Um, I just had a strong belief that uh, those were solvable technical challenges uh, and just didn't find a lot of that in the geothermal community. Um, thankfully, we did find some support uh, on that. You know, because I couldn't find a company to join, I decided to go to grad school and work on this as sort of a grad school thing. So I ended up going to Stanford. I did my MBA there and I got a master's degree in the School of Earth Sciences and importantly, did a lot of my research work with the Stanford Geothermal Program. And I found actually that that area was the one group within the geothermal community that was actually excited about, um, you know, what you could call the unconventional revolution of geothermal. So we did find some like-minded folks and ended up launching Fervo um, out of Stanford, uh, where myself and my co-founder, who was a PhD in Stanford's geothermal reservoir engineering program, and with the support of a lot of the technical advisors out of Stanford. So it was definitely a minority view back then about being able to solve these technical challenges. But, you know, we found enough uh, believers to, to get going with the, with the founding team, you know, kind of a technical set of folks, uh, and also attracted early investment from venture capitalists by 2018 as well. So um, we were able to give, give a solid go at this. Oh, that, that's exciting. I mean, don't don't tell the environmentalists, though, that fracking can lead to carbon free power generation. They, their minds might explode. Um, it's, it's, all right, so... it's always an interesting conversation. But I, I think what we've found is, you know, articulating the benefits of what we're doing from an emissions impact and and uh, and energy affordability and reliability standpoint, and then also discussing, like I'm sure a lot of the operators on, on the call do, you know, engaging with the community about explaining exactly what you're doing and why it's safe and why it can be done. We've got found a lot of success. We, we, we always call geothermal a sort of uniquely bipartisan energy resource. You know, if you're passionate about climate change and the environment, it's kind of the missing piece of the puzzle to help unlock a decarbonized electricity system. If you're passionate about, you know, energy access and, and American-made innovation and drilling, like, you know, we got that too. So what we found is actually broad broad support on both sides of the aisle for what we're doing. I was going to maybe save this to later in the discussion, but what if you're passionate about money? Can you do geothermal? Can you can you make money doing this? Yeah, and I think that's, that's one of the big keys on this is um, – is there's always been this perception that geothermal is too expensive and that enhanced geothermal systems is even more expensive. And I think had it not been for the technology revolution that brought about unconventional oil and gas in the United States, that probably would have been a true statement and probably would have been a true statement for forever. Um, but you think about it, that report from MIT in 2006, up until a couple of years ago, was still the best and latest information on geothermal that broke down cost structure and performance and depths and capabilities. 
And so you think about what was happening in 2006. I mean, the shale revolution barely had taken off yet. Um, and you think about differences in drilling times or completions intensity or 30-day IPs or EURs and how it's changed over the last 10 years in terms of driving productivity improvements in, in oil and gas. And imagine that, you know, anybody on this call had to go out and evaluate you know, a new prospect in the Permian, since you were just talking about a Permian acquisition, but yeah. you were only allowed to use technology assumptions from 2006 to evaluate if that was valuable acreage. Um, that was how the geothermal world was up until very, very recently. So what we proved with just our first projects was that um, the tech assumptions that went into, you know, that perception that geothermal was an expensive resource or that you couldn't make money at it we're way out of date and closing the gap between the drilling technology performance of oil and gas and geothermal, um, you know, led to a situation where you can have, uh, you know, very large acreage positions of projects that are in the money today. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the enhanced geothermal, like two minutes, what is enhanced geothermal system? It sounds like you're drilling unconventional wells, but that's all I got so far. Yeah, so conventional geothermal, you find, again, a shallow, hot, high temperature, naturally flowing reservoir um, to produce power. And the way geothermal works, you drill wells, steam comes out of the ground, and you do something at the surface to make that into electricity. You either have that steam power, um, you either have that steam power uh, go through a turbine directly, or you end up, uh, you know, using a heat exchanger to heat a different working fluid to create electricity. That's how the first geothermal plant came online in 1904. And that's how all geothermals work for the last 100 plus years. Uh, as I mentioned, though, the challenge of that is not everywhere is Iceland, not everywhere is the geysers in Northern California, not everywhere is the East African Rift of Kenya. And so if you don't have perfect geology, you know, traditionally the answer has been you're out of luck. And so actually in the 1970s, a group at Los Alamos National Lab in New Mexico came up with the wild idea of if permeability is a challenge, what if you, well, actually their first idea was since it was a national lab, if permeability is a challenge, what, 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 why not put just a nuclear uh, bomb down the well and see if we can create Hold flow up. that way? Yeah. yeah. And, I, and, and thankfully, probably for everybody, they decided that wasn't necessarily the right <laughs> path forward. But they did the first ever test of trying to apply hydraulic fracturing to uh, a geothermal well in the 1970s. Um, and it actually was sort of a technical success in a lot of ways. They showed that you could get higher flow rates and create flow connections. But the struggle was that uh, it didn't create enough flow and it didn't stay hot enough to be commercially viable. Um, but that was sort of the first ever enhanced geothermal system attempt. And since then, there's probably been about 50 tests all over the world um, to do EGS, but all of them basically look like a replication of that first experiment in um, Fenton Hill. You drill two vertical wells, you leave them in the open hole, you have one zone and you try to create a fracture between them to create flow. And none of them met the right technical or commercial metrics to be viable. Um, the, the thing that Fervo brought to the table that's different is the integration of a multi-zone completion and horizontal drilling to the mix. And it's the same thing that unlocked shale. You know, it's not like yeah. shale was the first resources that took advantage of hydraulic fracturing technology and oil and gas. It was just the first to systematically do it in a large multi-zone way using horizontal wells. And that was the key. And it's turned out that's the truth. That's the same in geothermal as well. So what Fervo does differently compared to all these past enhanced geothermal systems approaches, we drill down into the temperature of interest at depth, then we drill horizontally, and we have pairs of injections in producer wells that are parallel to each other, 
where we cross flow between them to generate heat we need. And it turns out that your ability to do multiple zones and get flow across multiple fractures across a much larger reservoir area um, is the key to making that pro that work economically. And and who are you partnered with? We we know that you know we saw Devin made an investment in Fervo, uh, so I'm sure you share notes there. Uh, who's who's drilling and fracking your wells? Yeah, so from a financial standpoint, we've had a lot of sources of funding to date. We've been fortunate to get uh, Department of Energy Research funding to sort of advance new high temperature tools and other methods here. Uh, and, you know, as an example, one of those was to work on a high temperature isolation plug with the project that we worked on with Schlumberger. Uh, we've also been fortunate to get investment from some of the biggest brand name uh, venture capitalists that are focused on climate tech. So on our cap table includes folks like Breakthrough Energy Ventures and uh, Capricorn Technology Fund and DCVC, some of the really big names and and um, uh, in um, the the climate venture capital world. Um, but we also, as kind of a core part of our thesis, wanted to tap into the best and the brightest from the oil and gas industry and the technology and equipment and services, with the idea that if it, if these are the groups that drove the shale revolution, they're also going to be the groups that drive the unconventional geothermal re uh, revolution. So. Our partners and investors in oil and gas include Devon Energy, as you mentioned, which is great. I love the, the history there that, you know, they were the ones that ultimately acquired Mitchell Energy. So not only were they kind of the first to the game in shale, but they're the first to the game in unconventional geothermal. So there's definitely a, a poetry to that, but also, you know, finding the best and the brightest when it comes to equipment suppliers. So we've also gotten investment from uh, Helmer Campaign and Liberty Energy, and they've, they're, they're two of our largest equipment suppliers, you know, on the pressure pumping and drilling rig contract side as well. And so that's sort of the, the team, I'd call it, of not just Fervo and our employees, but the broad coalition of folks working towards this goal together. I love it. I love seeing the traditional energy economy and the new energy economy coming together to solve these these challenges that we have in in, in power gen um, in in zero emission power gen. So um, that that's great to hear about those partnerships. So um, you had mentioned this MIT paper um, back from '06, and then you you mentioned there were some new ones. Um, like who's who, who updated the paper? Was it you? <laughs> it wasn't me. Um, oh, okay. But you know the rate. The latest update came out in 2019, and a new report called the GeoVision Study, um, and it was a great update. And I think it included a lot of really powerful uh, um, uh, advancements in terms of how we understood geothermal development and enhanced geothermal systems. But it actually was something that again, you know, used drilling cost and performance data that was out of date. So if you actually look at the references that they used to build their cost curves they were mostly pulling from drilling data that was before 2010. And so again, it was sort of like, what would geothermal cost if we only had access to technology that was 15 years out of date was sort of the question there. Um, it's only just now starting to change recently. Um, we finished drilling our first three wells in 2022. And so we published that information in 2023. And thankfully it's already worked its way into some of the, you know, um, like the National Renewable Energy Laboratories uh, cost baselines for geothermal. So it's already making a pretty big impact, but there's definitely a lag between what we're seeing in performance in the field and what what's happening in um, uh, and what's happening in in the uh, um, you know sort of the analysis world of where of where the latest is on geothermal because it takes a while for us to publish our results and then work them into new reports. And so you know when we updated our when we published our performance, we already kind of beat 
the assumptions, even on our first pilot project, uh, to such an extent that they had to essentially uh, reduce the cost assumptions by about 50%. And that was just on our very first project, our very first wells. If you look at our drilling performance year over year, we've now reduced drilling costs just year over year by over 70% from that number, which was already 50% better than um, kind of what was forecasted in terms of drilling cost structure. So it's a very quickly. What's the quickly, difference, what's what's the the difference in drilling like, like a horizontal for oil and gas versus drilling a horizontal for geothermal? Is it deeper? Do you need different? Bits, yeah, like it's not deeper, but again, it's it's harder, hotter, and larger diameter, and so those are the things that drive. Ah, okay, got it, got it. And traditionally, there had been conventional wisdom that uh, you know you couldn't get high ROP drilling time drilling in a hard rock environment like granite. But when we looked at it, what we noticed was number one, people were not using sort of the automation and and uh, software and tools. That drive the drilling performance the way the shale has. You know, it's not like people uh, were building these cost curves off of the latest uh, performance. So, you know, if you're only looking at 2005 drilling performance to say what right. happens, you know, when we work with Helmer campaign on this, you know, the, the auto driller and all of the things that drive the software automation, we're the first people to ever apply that to geothermal. So that makes a big difference. And there's other things like um, uh, PDC bits, the conventional wisdom, you know, PDC bits, were a big part of driving the drilling performance that drove shale. And if you talk to people in the drilling engineering space and especially the geothermal incumbents, they would tell you PDC bits are great for soft rock, but we have to use old roller bits because we have, we're in hard rock. Um, we didn't believe that. And we set up a systematic program to drive performance in PDC drilling because we thought PDC was gonna do exactly for hard rock granite drilling what it's done for um, shale. And what we found is that whenever you set up a systematic program to trial and error what works on PDC bit drilling from a bit design and performance standpoint, working with our suppliers, um, the performance was was way better than advertised. And actually, you know what, PDC bits work great in granite. And that was something that was uh, counterintuitive. And so even though it's harder and hotter and larger diameter, what we're, where we are from a drilling time standpoint is not all that different from shale performance now um, because we've systematically applied these tools uh, in, a, in a way that just hadn't been done before in geothermal. You know, we, we, we heard about costs coming down for the last 15 years in, in shale. And so for you to say that your costs are coming down isn't surprising. I just, I guess I thought you, I thought you would have started at like a lower base because of the learnings from, from shale. But I guess, like you said, there were some different properties that you had to sort of figure out first. But the, the Well, I mean, just to put some... To put some hard numbers on this, um, you know, there's a great Department of Energy project called the Utah Forge Project, um, uh, where they've drilled some deep deviated wells over the last couple of years. And so to give you an idea of sort of where the performance expectation was, um, their first deviated well drilled about um, 11,000 total feet measured depth, um, got to a temperature of roughly 230 degrees C, and most of it through granite, um, you know, the AFE curve that they built for that, um, they expected it to take 110 days. Um, but that's because it was off of very dated information. And their very first time out, they drilled that well in like 70 days. And so way ahead of what people yeah. expected because of this, we looked at those results and, and we've come in now and drilled wells there. And our first well was also in that same range around 70 days. Um, but as we've gotten a systematic drilling program together, what we've done is year over year, reduced drilling times from 70 days to 20. 
And so keep in mind when people advertise and forecast geothermal costs, they're still assuming that you're gonna get four feet per hour ROPs through, uh, through granite, that your bit's only gonna last for a couple hundred feet and you gotta swap it out every time and that there's gonna be all these other challenges that go into it. Um, meanwhile, we're drilling these wells about 80% faster than what was forecasted just because the, the, the technology benchmarking didn't keep up. So keep that in mind anytime you read something about geothermal being expensive, people are assuming that the technology has not changed in 20 years. And what we yeah. know now is that's not true. And, and Fervo thankfully has the drilling results to prove that. Well, it seems like we're sort of at the the beginning of you know this next generation of geothermal using these new tech. So it's really exciting. Um, I'm sure there are a number of listeners here as I see questions come in that want to geek out on all like the very technical details. But there are a couple of things that I wanted to to check in with you on. Um, the when after our after our discussion earlier last week, uh, I wanted to title this talk uh, Wind and Solar, the Bridge to Geothermal. Uh, as you know, wind and solar, you know, they get they get all the, the headlines these days, but they're intermittent and they have massive physical footprints. Um, I, I think we've sort of answered the question, why has geothermal been sort of left out of the race? But um, how do you see that maybe changing uh, yeah. in, in the next decade? That's oh, a great question. And power markets are completely different than what they were even a few years ago. So if there, there's a couple things that have driven that difference. One is I would say sort of the, the scale of the ambition and the targets for decarbonization. So if you looked five years ago, the most ambitious plan in the country for decarbonizing the electric grid was in California. And they've said that they were gonna get, try to get 25% of their grid from renewables. And if your goal is only 25%, the intermittency issues of wind and solar aren't that big of a deal. So when solar got cheap and you're trying to only get a small percentage of your energy from solar, fine, 25% works. Um, but what we saw is in 2019, Hawaii passed the first ever 100% renewable energy target. And now we've seen 15 more states uh, pass a similar target. And it turns out 100% uh, of your grid from carbon-free sources is a very different challenge than 25%. And it does require you to find how some. expensive it is for the consumer of that power. Yes. Other challenges. Yes. Yeah. And so what it did is sort of set people on looking, you know, what does it actually take to get a fully a full grid decarbonized? And if you only have solar to do it, you know, it's just not not ever going to happen. It's cost prohibitive. Uh, it doesn't matter how much storage you add. But if you start thinking about, OK, can solar and wind and hydro and geothermal and natural gas with, with CCS all work together? it gets achievable. So just the ambition scale really lifted the profile of geothermal. And then, of course, what we've seen is world events like uh, disruption in the fuel supply uh, uh, driven by geopolitical issues, plus the fact that like me in Texas during Winter Storm Uri, I lost power for five days. Um, reliability got back on the agenda. So not, we, we benefited from this thing where people's ambition on decarbonization got bigger in the states we operate in. And there were these really poignant reminders that reliability and security matters all at the same time. And guess what? Geothermal is the thing that addresses all of those issues. And so geothermal now is highly in the spotlight because it's sort of the one fuel source that can come online this decade, because it's a mature technology, work around the clock without relying on the weather and do so in a carbon-free way. And the number of buyers that want specifically that is massive and, and we have essentially unlimited demand for our product 
that's fantastic. All right, so we only have a few minutes left here. I want to touch on two things before I let you go. Um, one, you know, you, you did this this pilot project. We've seen it in the news with Google, three and a half megawatts. Uh, everyone's really excited about it, especially Google, um, to power all their AI data center thingies. Um, tell us a little bit about your your um, your upcoming projects. Uh, how long does it take to get them online, and how big are they going to be? Yeah, yeah. So I'll talk. So Product Red was our pilot project. It was through a partnership with Google as part of their 24/7 carbon-free initiative to power their data centers. As you mentioned, we were really excited to welcome them as a as a customer and partner in this effort. And that was really like let's prove this out at the most basic level. So we drilled a vertical observation well, a horizontal production well, and a horizontal injection well. We were really excited when we flow tested that well that it basically met our design expectations. We now brought that project online. It's revenue generating, it's in production, and it's producing right around that three and a half megawatt uh, level, which was, we're quite excited about. Um, and I think the nice thing about this kind of technology as we think about scaling it up is it is a lot like shale. You know, it's there's a manufacturing mentality to this. There is a learning curve to this. Us going from a four megawatt project to a 400 megawatt project doesn't require us to redesign the entire system. All it requires us to do is drill more wells. And so we are looking right now at how do we upgrade the productivity of our wells, especially in light of our drilling performance, and then how do we do that again and again and again to scale quickly. And so we've already begun drilling our next project, which we call Project Cape, and it's in Utah, and it's fully contracted. We have utility customers for the entire project, all 400 megawatts, um, and we've actually completed drilling the first five wells there already. And how many do you what need we're doing, for 400 megawatts? How many wells do you 100 need? 100 wells. And so okay. what we're doing differently from Project Red is rather than two wells, it's 100 wells. And it's also same playbook as shale, reduce your drilling costs, increase your lateral length, increase your, your intensity, and get better production. And so we're, we're doing all that stuff. We're reducing the cluster spacing. We're going from 3,000-foot laterals to currently 5,000-foot laterals. Uh, and then we're going to go to 10,000-foot laterals in the near future um, and, and get higher flow rates out of these wells. So rather than four megawatts per well pair, we're looking at eight to 10 megawatts per well pair. So we do uh, 50 well pairs, 100 wells, and we get to that project. And we're, we're right in the middle of that program right now. And we also have a very extensive pipeline across the Western United States of projects that look just like that one. So we're gonna be picking up uh, rigs over the coming years to, to develop a lot of projects that look like that and, um, and move forward. And that's the next phase of scale up for Fervo. H&P better go build some fit for purpose uh, geothermal rigs now. I don't know. It sounds like uh, you got a lot, right. of, a lot of work to do. Um, well, they've been a phenomenal right. partner. You know, we wouldn't have the drilling results we had if we didn't have a great uh, technology partner on the drilling rig services side. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, last question, totally self-serving. Um, so what, what kind of data do you and the world need to see from Inveris, of course, uh, on a consistent basis to incentivize more folks with a subsurface background like yours uh, to start investing here, to start developing these projects? Yeah, I think there's gonna be a lot more data coming out around you know, drilling performance, uh, production results that, that sort of needs to get fed in. It, it is amazing to me how many decades people have been using assumptions from 2006 on performance. And, and uh, you know, that feedback loop, that loop I talked about of like faster drilling times, but the time we publish them in a paper and then a government agency reads that paper and gets it through their internal approvals. Like, you know, our costs right now won't show up in the next like study 
that that comes out of an official NREL update until probably 2025 or 2026. And so people are going to miss the boat. So we definitely need more current data there. Um, it's also, I know, as you all expanded to different energy services, power is different than uh, oil and gas, as I'm sure you know. And, and it's yeah. not just about finding the right geology, but it's finding the right geology on land you can permit, the transmission you can access. And there's a huge data question about um, you know, where, where do you actually go? Not just like where are the rocks good, but where does it, where do the rocks and your customers intersect? And so there's just a lot, a lot that could be provided there to better inform the investment community, better inform the customer community and, and, you know, give, uh, you know, service companies who are interested about geothermal, but don't know how much to invest or where to go, you know, the confidence they need to say, yeah, we are going to develop that high temp tool because this industry is taking off. Well, believe me, as we've expanded our footprint within the energy space, I'm learning about things like congestion and interconnects and queues. And I'm like, it's not just a line. Yeah, it's a really long one. Um, well, <laughs> uh, Tim, thank you very much uh, for your time today. This has been a great conversation. I know we could go on for a while, but um, we'll, we'll have to save some of these questions for, for next time. Uh, to everybody else tuning in, uh, join me next month when my uh, my guest will be Naomi uh, Bonus. She's Managing Director of the Stanford Natural Gas Initiative and the Stanford Hydrogen Initiative. Quite a combo. Uh, in the meantime, you can subscribe to Morning Energy Live podcasts on Apple, Apple or Spotify. Obviously, leave a five-star review, and uh, you might even see a few bonus podcasts in the coming weeks. Thanks, everyone, and have a happy holiday. Take care.